any rate, uh, this morning we are in the final week of our series that we've been calling Broken Together. And in this series we've been looking at what it means to be the kind of church where it's safe to be vulnerable about our brokenness. Where we can come together acknowledging that we're all broken, that we're all in need of healing and redemption, and that we can be the kind of community where people find support and help and healing for their places of struggle. And it's been a great series. Um, It's been a series where I think we've taken a step forward in being and becoming a safe church. We have tackled some very uh, important issues. We've talked about depression and grief and loss and sexual brokenness and codependency and addiction and hurts and habits and hangups. And this morning, I wanna close our series out with a topic that may at first glance seem a little less appealing. It may not be quite as enticing as the others, but let me challenge you with this. I think this is one of the most important topics for the church in our day. I believe that if we do not get this one right, we will never be the kind of safe and healing church that God longs for us to be and that I believe our world desperately needs. Today, we are talking about unity, and specifically unity in the church, and more specifically, unity in our church amongst the community of believers here at Cedar Mill Bible. And our outline today, our kind of roadmap for where we're headed, for those of you who like to know the plan, is this. Unity, what it is, why it's so important, and how we can keep it. What, why, and how on unity. So first, what is unity? And the real question here, the question that we're actually after, the deeper question, is what does the Bible mean by unity in the church? What are the scriptures actually calling us to? That's the question here. And let me kind of attempt to answer that question by talking first about what unity is not. What the Bible does not say. And I'll give you three things. First, unity is not just the absence of conflict. You know, one thing that's really interesting when you read the Gospels, Jesus talks about the church. He doesn't talk about the church a whole lot, but he does several times. And the first time he talks about the church, the first time he uses the word ecclesia, which is the Greek word for church, he is on a kind of a field trip with his disciples and they're off in this this city where there's all sorts of evil and injustice happening and Jesus huddles his guys up and he asks them some questions. He says about, you know, about himself and about the kingdom and finally he asks them directly, who do you say that I am? And then Peter, this is a famous passage, says what? He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. You're the savior. And Jesus says, nailed it. You got it, Peter. And on that rock, on that profession of faith, I will build my church. And then he says, and he kind of points at all this evil and injustice that are are happening all around them. And he says, and not even the gates of Hades, the gates of hell will stand against the church. In fact, the church is going to wipe out all evil and injustice and oppression in this world. God is going to use his people. So the first time that Jesus talks about the church, it's sort of like a scene from Braveheart and Jesus is rallying his bride towards and against the forces of evil. It's amazing. That's the first time Jesus talks about the church. Does anyone know the second time Jesus talks about the church? 
The second time is just two chapters later. But now, instead of talking about attacking the forces of hell, Jesus shifts gears and is talking about conflict that's going to happen in the church amongst believers. (laughs) So right away, right at the very beginning of the narrative, Jesus addresses the fact that the church is a place where there is going to be conflict. And I bring this up because most people, most even Christians, most churchgoers have this unexpressed and not very well thought out belief that there should be no or very little conflict in the church. That the church should be this place where people are just nice and get along all the time. That unity means we should never argue or fight or disagree. But friends, that's not what Jesus expects. And we'll talk about why in a bit. But for now, let me just suggest this to you. Conflict should be done well in the church, but it should not be avoided. And if one day you happen to find a church where there is little or no conflict, you've probably found a church that has gotten comfortable and complacent and is not on mission in a way where the enemy is stirring up struggle such they might have to fight for unity. You know, one thing I find fascinating is this. When you read the New Testament and you read about the New Testament church, the small little groups and communities of people that ultimately changed the world, that spread Christianity around the globe, do you know that their story is riddled with conflict? (laughs) When you read about the New Testament church, there is conflict after conflict after conflict, and I'm convinced that one of the reasons for this is because the enemy does not like what they're up to. One scholar I read this week said it this way, what we find in the New Testament is that unity is not the absence of conflict, but that it's forged in the midst of conflict. You see, unity is not the absence of conflict. Unity is forged in the midst of conflict. And so we must never define unity as the absence of conflict. We are a united church because everyone is getting along. That is such a thin and shallow definition. Here's the second thing unity isn't. Unity is not just similarity. Another thing you'll notice is that Every time the New Testament brings up unity, it is almost always in the context of a conversation about diversity, about how to have unity in a context where people around you are not the same. In Ephesians 4, for example, Paul is urging this church to be united, to come together. And he says this, this is from the message, Ephesians 4. You were all called to travel on the same road and in the same direction, so stay together, both outwardly and inwardly. You have one master, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who rules over all, works through all, and is present in all. Everything you are and think and do is permeated with oneness. But, let's get one thing straight, but let's be real clear, that doesn't mean you should all look and speak and act the same. Unity is not the same as similarity. 
See, what Paul is saying here is that our natural tendency as human beings is to confuse sameness with unity. But in the Bible, difference and diversity are a central part of unity in the church. In the Bible, it is impossible to have unity without diversity. Just this week, I was invited um, by a good friend to spend some time uh, with a, a black pastor from across town. And we just shared stories with each other and talked about our different congregations and got to know one another. And at one point, we, he was telling me about the congregation over there. He leads a church called All Nations. And he was saying, what a gift and what a blessing it is that in their church, there are just a whole slew of different ethnicities. There's natives and blacks and browns and Hispanics and Latinos and whites and Asians and probably some people who don't even know what they are because they've just got some of all of it in them. And he talked about a Sunday where he got up to preach and he was feeling so good about the diversity of his congregation. But when he looked out, he suddenly noticed that all the different ethnic groups were sitting together in separate little pockets. And it sort of hit him that they were all together and yet they weren't really together. And so I loved what he did. He laughed and he pointed it out and he made them all stand up and switch seats. <laughs> and I'm not gonna do that today, but um, I, loved, I loved that image of everyone just sort of moving seats to be with people that weren't just like them. Here's the point though, friends. The point is this, difference divides. I don't know if you've noticed this in our world. Difference divides. We naturally as human beings gravitate towards people like us. People who look like us, people who think like us, worship like us, vote like us, earn like us. We gravitate towards people like us and that means we often move away from people who aren't like us. But the New Testament, time and time again, offers a different vision for the church. The New Testament was controversial in its declaration that people who were actually very different in all sorts of ways could come together and experience unity. Listen to this from Galatians chapter 3. Consider what a radically countercultural statement this would have been. Again, this is Paul calling for something different in the church. He says, In Christ, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, friends, these were people, these were groups who would have unequivocally divided from one another. But now, Paul says, in Christ, something crazy, something radical, something the world had yet to see could happen. They could be united together as one in Jesus Christ. You see, friends, unity in the scriptures is not just similarity. But we confuse it all the time. We get around other people like us, other Christ followers like us, and we all agree, and we all act the same and think the same and look the same and live the same, and you think, man, we don't have any conflict. We must have unity. Well, kind of, 
but maybe not the full picture of biblical unity, a unity that longs for us to be in a diverse community together. The next thing that unity is, and unity is not conflict avoidance, it's not sameness, and finally, it is not just agreements. It is not just agreements. You see, often in our world, agreements are the foundation for us to have relationship. This is often how our world works when it comes to relating with others. If you agree with me, that's step one, then I can respect you. And if I can respect you, then I can accept you. And up the pyramid it goes. But it all starts with agreement. In fact, often in our world, it is very difficult to forge any kind of deep relationship with someone you disagree with. Because agreements are the starting place. But Jesus comes and he says, there's a whole new way. He actually flips this entire paradigm upside down. He flipped so many things upside down. There's just another thing he flips upside down. He comes and what does he do? He starts with acceptance. While we were yet sinners, he accepts us. Even when we did not agree with him at all, he accepts us. Even when we disagreed with him so fervently that we nailed him to a cross, he accepts us. And he looks for things to love and respect in us and then he moves us towards agreement with himself. You see, this is a radical new way of doing gospel relationships. I can love you, I can be in relationship with you even when you don't agree with me and Jesus is the model for it. But as churches, even as Jesus-following churches, even as churches that sometimes declare we want to become like Jesus, we often turn the pyramid upside down again. See, as religious people, we sometimes fall into the trap of going back to the old triangle and relying solely on our theological agreements. In other words, what we say in the church often is this, okay, here's where we have unity. Our unity is found solely in the place where we have theological agreements. And this one's tricky, by the way, because the New Testament does call for some theological agreement in the church. It is a part of our unity. Theology is part of unity, but I believe it's only a part. And when we reduce all of unity down to just theological agreements, we are robbed of the rich, thick, full unity that God longs for us to have in Christ. Because again, biblical immunity is much, much more. It's not less than, but it is more than agreement. You know, one of the images Paul uses to talk about unity in the church, he uses the image of a body. He says the church is like a body made up of many parts. And some people are toes, and some are eyes, and some are ears, and some are feet, and some are kneecaps. Um, I don't know what you are, Doug. Maybe like a, I don't know, hip bone or something. No, I don't know. But we're all sort of these different parts that was weird, a hip bone. I, that's all I could come up with. That wasn't in my script. I apologize. <laughs> but I do love Doug. Um, so all these different parts, right? And yet we are united together in our difference to accomplish God's mission in this world. Different people, 
different gifts and passions and roles joined together by the death and resurrection of Jesus and led by the Spirit of God to join God accomplishing his mission in the world. That's the church, friends. And so we must resist the temptation to reduce our unity down to a simple list of beliefs or theological arguments because we will miss the wonderfully organic partnership and togetherness the Bible calls for us to have. And friends, the Bible does not take this call lightly. This call for unity, this call to be the church, to be one together is not something that's sort of an extra. The scriptures say unity in the church is an enormous thing and here's why. I'll give you two reasons. First of all, maturity. In Ephesians chapter four, Paul says, keeping and fighting for unity is a central part of what will make you a mature follower of Jesus. That there's something about interacting and working with Jesus followers who are different than you that makes you more like Christ, that helps you refine your thinking, that, that sands the rough spots off of your character. You see, the struggle and fight for unity in the midst of diversity, it is not always fun and it's certainly not easy, but it does create maturity in followers of Jesus. And maturity is something that God longs for every single one of us. You see, here's what the scriptures teach. You cannot be fully mature in Christ without fighting for unity in the church. And I know that's not a message that our world likes to offer, that even our Christian world today wants to promote. They, the, our world wants to say, you can get mature with Jesus, just you and Jesus alone with your Bible. You don't even need to be a part of a church. You don't even need to show up to church. And yet I would argue that the scriptures say, apart from the church, apart from experiencing and fighting for unity in the church, you will never be fully mature in Christ. Here's the other thing about unity that's huge. It gives the gospel credibility. It gives the gospel credibility. John 17, Jesus is soon to die on the cross. He's very near the end of his time with his disciples and he's praying with them and he's praying for them. And at the end of his prayer, listen to what he says. And he's speaking out loud. His disciples can hear him. He says in verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. He's talking to his father about his disciples. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Who's that? That's us. That's the church throughout the centuries, the people who will believe in Jesus through their message. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Now, there's a whole lot in that passage, but let me just point this one thing out. God's plan, his strategy, at least one of them, is that people will be drawn to the gospel through the amazing unity that they discover in the church. That 
when they experience our oneness in Christ, they will say, it must be true. It must be true. This news about Jesus, this news about his death and resurrection, this news about God's love for me, it must be true. Now, have you ever heard of a church that didn't have perfect unity or harmony or mutuality or oneness? Have you ever experienced a church where maybe people walked in, saw what was happening and said, I'm not sure it's true (laughs) because that unity does not convince me at all. You know, I was reading this week about splits that have taken place in denominations um, and One author writes that in the 20th century, there have been over 100 different Baptist denominations alone, most of which came out of a fight of one sort or another. Northern Baptist, Southern Baptist, American Baptist, Duck River and Kindred Association Baptist, General Six Principal Baptist, Free Will Baptist, Separate Baptist, Regular Baptist, Primitive Baptist, and one group called the Two Seed in the Spirit Predestinarian Baptist. That's the actual name of a Baptist denomination that only existed for a little while. Shocking they didn't last long. (laughs) The same author also points out that there is a denomination that called itself the Church of God. Then there was a fight and a branch broke off calling itself the true church of God. Then there was a fight in that denomination and the other branch broke off and called itself the only true church of God. (laughs) And we laugh because it, it seems so silly and we're so used to it. But Jesus says disunity in the church is actually no laughing matter. Conflict is inevitable, but disunity, according to Jesus, is unacceptable because the maturity of believers and the reputation of the gospel are at stake. We must start to take unity in the church as seriously as the scriptures do, as seriously as Jesus did. And so our last question this morning is how? How do we live into unity in our church? How do we continue to be and become more and more a place where people walk in and walk out saying, it must be true? I'm going to give you three G's to close us out this morning. The first one is this. We must never forget that unity is a gift. This will actually help us live into unity if we never forget that unity is a gift. Ephesians chapter four again, again, Paul talking about unity and diversity. He says this, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort to forge the unity. No, make every effort to form, make every effort to earn, make every effort to create. No, what does he say? He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit. Why? Because in the scriptures, unity is something that is given to us by the Holy Spirit. Unity in the church is so powerful because it's supernatural. It's a spirit-powered thing. It does say 
also make every effort, which is, by the way, a very rare verb in the New Testament that kind of uh, promotes very intense urgency. In other words, with everything that you have, with, with, like, with fervent, fervent intensity, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. So in other words, this is a spirit-empowered thing, but, but we are not called to be passive in it. We are actively involved. We walk with the spirit to maintain the unity that we have been trusted with. And here's why this is powerful. When we are given an immensely valuable gift by someone that we love, we are typically motivated to take very good care of it. Have you ever experienced this before? Sometimes when I own something and it's mine, I'll take care of it for a little while, but you know, I can treat it however I want because it's mine, I earned it. But when someone who I love dearly gives me something very valuable and it's a gift, and it's a gift of grace, and I didn't earn it or deserve it at all, now all of a sudden I am very, very motivated to take care of it. I've talked about my watch before. It was my grandfather's watch, just to refresh your memory. Um, My grandmother bought it for him uh, one Christmas when they were very, very poor. Uh, She financed it and they paid on it for years. Um, it's It's a Rolex and it was my grandfather's most valued possession. And when he died at his funeral, my dad, who's the oldest of three boys, my dad and my two uncles, one night at dinner said, we think granddad would want you to have his watch. Um, It's probably one of the most uh, precious things that I own. Um, I love it. I wear it every week to preach. You might notice that. Um, And and, uh, I'm very protective of it. I'll just confess this to you if you didn't guess this about me. I'm the kind of person who's prone to lose things. Um, And so I'm very careful with this watch. It only goes in certain places. I do not take it off and lay it down randomly, right? Because it is so special to me. I, I take care of it, I protect it, I steward it. A couple months ago, I was off on a run after work, which drove straight from work to Forest Park where I was running on the trail. When I came back to my car, I left my watch in the center console of the car and found the front window completely shattered out. As I run up on my car and things are sort of, you know, hitting me, the front window's out, what was in the car? Oh no, my watch. And there was about a 10 second period where I was on the brink of tears. And praise the Lord, I opened the car door, crawled in amongst the shattered glass and opened the center console to find that the thieves weren't all that sharp. So thank you Jesus for that. Um, But here's the point. We've been given the, I, I do not leave it in the car anymore. You're right, I did learn my lesson, yes. Absolutely. Multiple lessons here in this sermon. Um, (laughs) But here's the real point. We have been given the gift of experiencing the unity of the Trinity in the church. That is what the Spirit works in us. And when we remember what a tremendous gift it is and that we have not deserved it, it's been given for free to you and me, we will care for that gift and protect it fervently. The unity of the church is not something to trifle with. It is a gift, a precious, valuable gift that we all get to steward. Second, we must never forget the goal, the goal of unity. 
This is what Paul writes to Timothy. Timothy is a young pastor, pastoring in a church where there are all sorts of issues, tons of conflict, tons of opportunities for there to be disunity in this body of believers. And here's what he writes. Here's what Paul writes to Timothy. Do not have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. You see, you thought stupid was a bad word, but it's in the Bible. Um, <laughs> Do not have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. You see, Paul writes to Timothy, and to summarize what he says, he says, Timothy, in the midst of all sorts of conflict, never forget this. Your call is to win hearts, not arguments. Amen. Your call is to value people more than you value positions or being right. When there is a conflict situation that might lead to disunity, Timothy, in the church, handle it with so much kindness and gentleness. By the way, Jesus says something real similar. Um, He's talking about the kingdom of God. He's talking about what it means to live into God's kingdom and be his people. Another way of talking about being in the church. He says this, if you love those who love you, what good is that? Even the pagans do that, right? He says, but I tell you instead, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Now, there are all kinds of different enemies in our world but I want to suggest to you this morning that in our world, in our society, in our culture, enemies have become people that disagree with you. People that have a different understanding of the world than you. People who want to emphasize a different moral framework than you. And Jesus says, when you do conflict with your enemies, with people who treat you as the enemy, first and foremost, Love them. Love them. Because friends, I'll say what? That's so valuable in the church. That is so essential in the church. It sounds so simple, and it is so essential because guess what? The church can handle disagreement. Again, read the New Testament. There is a lot of disagreement in the church. The church can handle disagreement. The church has lived through some pretty big, robust disagreements. The church can handle disagreement, but it cannot handle divisiveness. This is Titus chapter 3. Again, Paul writing to a young leader, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law. And by the way, all those things represent the most controversial and hot topics of the day. Right? I mean... I don't know how genealogies become such a hot topic, but they were back then. Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. You see, this is how seriously the scriptures take divisiveness in the church, anyone who would seek to disrupt the unity of God's people. 
Doesn't mean you can't disagree. Doesn't mean you can't have a different opinion. Doesn't mean we can't have heated, robust discussions. But that is different than sowing divisiveness and disunity into the church. And here's what Paul says. And here's what I'd say as well. We'll warn you once. And then we'll warn you twice. And then we'll send you to the Baptists. (laughs) Because chances are they sent you to us first. So... That's number two. Here's number three. Here's the third G. Sometimes we need a guide. Sometimes we need a guide because, friends, the church is not a building. It's people. We are the church. You are the church. I am the church. And where there's people, there will be conflict. And sometimes we need a guide to help us remember how central our disagreements are or aren't how important the issues are and how important the issues aren't. Let me explain it this way. When it comes to what we believe about things, there are levels of importance. And in the center of our graph, uh, we have what we might call essentials. These are things that are essential to our faith. These are the agreements that we must agree on. These are the agreements at the top of that pyramid that Jesus is calling us towards that are actually really important for our relationship. The theology that matters. Things we believe absolutely. The core convictions of our faith in Christ. Things in this circle might include the divinity of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus, the authority of the scriptures, salvation by grace through faith, that every human being is created in God's image and has dignity. Things that we would just hold on to, that we would not compromise on. Then we jump out to the outer ring, would call for argument's sake this layer opinions and questions. These are things that we are uncertain about. We may have an opinion, we may not, we may have questions, but there is not certainty in our minds or hearts or even a strongly held belief in the church and the Bible is probably either silent or unclear on the matter. And in this circle are things like, wait for it, it's about to get personal, style of worship music. Parenting styles, health choices, the best way to run youth ministry, children's ministry, women's ministry, outreach ministry, the quality of Pastor Dave's sermons. But then there is this layer in the middle, and we'll call this layer in the middle important issues. These are things that matter. These are things that we may and probably do have beliefs and biblical convictions about, but they are often things where there is not consensus or full agreement in the church, in the Christian community. These are things where there is a diversity of opinion and or perspective. Things like depression, addiction, Sexual brokenness, men and women, divorce, baptism, perseverance of the saints, God's sovereignty and how that works with human free will. And here's the point, friends. This circle, this middle circle, is where a lot of churches struggle to have healthy, robust unity in the midst of diversity. You see, aside from worship music, which, you know, Aside from that one, we're generally okay in the, outer, in the outer ring. For some reason, worship music wants to jump into the middle. I don't know why. Um, 
I have a few thoughts on why, but that's another message. Uh, aside from worship music, we're generally okay with the things in the outer ring. We're okay disagreeing. We're okay with you having a different opinion than I have. Um, and we can sort of coexist, not all thinking alike. In general, that's pretty easy for us in the church. And also, likewise, in general, we're pretty comfortable in the center as well. We agree generally, if not almost completely in the church, about those things, about the death and resurrection, about Jesus, about God, his sovereignty, those sorts of things. But this middle section is where we struggle. This middle section is where we have conflict. And again, in the church, we are so uncomfortable with conflict because we think conflict means disunity. And so we try to figure out how can we not have conflict in this area, in these areas, around these issues, around these places of brokenness and struggle in our world. And there are generally two strategies that churches take to avoid conflict. And I would argue to avoid and rob themselves of healthy biblical unity. Because when you, when you avoid conflict, I believe you avoid the opportunity to create healthy biblical unity in your congregation. And so here's what churches do. They avoid conflict by saying, Increase the importance of all these things or decrease the importance of all these things? Make all these important issues essential issues or make all these important issues opinion issues. And when churches push everything into the middle, when they make all important issues essential issues or, or some important issues essential issues, that's their way of avoiding conflict because now... If you don't agree, you have to leave. It's either agree with us or go home, right? We're right. This is the only view. This is essential. There is no room for opinion, debate, discussion. And so we can avoid having all those hard, difficult, tough, robust conversations because these are just essential issues. On the other hand, some churches will do the exact opposite. They'll say, there is no clarity, it's not even worth wrestling with. Everyone has an opinion. Think whatever you want on that. It doesn't really matter. They'll push everything out into opinion. Nothing is worth struggling over. Nothing is worth having a deep conversation about. Nothing is worth challenging or being willing to be challenged. And so the question I have for you this morning, just as we pause here for a second, is which of these two people do you tend to be? Do you tend to be someone who wants to make important issues essential issues? Is that your temptation? Or do you, are you the kind of person who's tempted to make important issues peripheral issues? Are you tempted to avoid conflict in either one of those ways? If you're not sure right now, think of some issues that might fit into, those, into that category. Are you tempted to make it essential or are you tempted to make it peripheral? If you still don't know, ask your spouse. Which of these people do I tend to be? Ask your coworkers, ask your small group, ask your siblings or close friends. They will tell you, I promise they know. I already know what Amy is going to say to me when I get home. I was a little bummed she showed up this morning at first service. I was hoping to dodge this conversation. However, it's a worthy question. You see, friends, churches are tempted to avoid 
the challenge of leaving important issues as important issues. They're, they're tempted to dodge difficult, thick, robust, challenging conversations, and thus we're tempted to rob ourselves of the opportunity to grow in unity and diversity and maturity in Christ. And I say this, I think we as a church can do better than that. I believe we can love each other in the midst of real, hard, difficult, robust disagreement. And I'll go even a step further and say, I think this church is actually pretty exceptional at that. See, one of the things that's true about us is that we, and some of you know this, some of you may not, are a non-denominational church. That means we don't have a denomination. We're not Baptist or Methodist or Lutheran or Presbyterian or Dutch Reformed River Ridge Baptist. We're none of those. We're just non-denominational. There's no other outside group of people saying, here's what you believe. Here's, here's what the essentials are. Here's what the important issues are. Here are the peripheral things. No one else is determining that for us. We don't have a tradition that sort of we've all grown up in that's taught us, like, here's what we think about these things. Now, there's some real strengths to that, but here's the difficulty. We all come together from different places with different ideas, different perspectives, different beliefs. We've been taught different things, and that creates like, 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 a, like a real strong possibility for there to be huge conflict here. It also creates the strong possibility for there to be robust conversation and unity and learning and growth and transformation in our midst. And I have to say this, I think we as a church have done a pretty good job. And I, and I won't take credit for that, but I do want to say that I'm so grateful for pastors like Al Wallen and Carl Palmer, for leaders over the decades who have refused to let us become an issues church who have refused to let us be defined as a church by one or two hot topic issues. Because you know what happens specifically in churches like ours, churches that are called Bible churches? Here's how this dialogue often goes. We would say, hey, we have some essential things and on that list would be the authority of the scriptures. And then every single issue we would interpret through the Bible and we'd say, and if you don't agree with our biblical interpretation, it's not that we disagree on an issue, you don't believe the Bible. And so all those important issues get pushed into the middle under sort of this cover of, well, if you take the scripture seriously, then you have to agree with us. And so it's sort of a backdoor way of making the inner circle really big. And that's a huge temptation in our world. That's a huge temptation um, for, a, for a Bible church. Because the world wants to constantly push us that way. And if you listen to enough Christian radio, you'll come in here with all sorts of ideas, all sorts of things that we must make essential. And yet what that leaves out is this, this real fact that sometimes the New Testament isn't quite as clear as we've been taught that it was, as we learned in Sunday school. Now, let me say this, the New Testament is very, very clear, very, very clear on the core issues of our faith. And then there's some other places where there's room for discussion. And we have, over the decades, been a church where that discussion has been allowed. And I think we're better for it. We have refused 
to be defined by any issue. We have refused to let the world know us by what we're against. Because here's the truth. We have always been a church that stands together around what we are for because what we are for is so much bigger and more important than what this world wants to make us against. We stand together for grace and peace and hope and eternal life and redemption and reconciliation and forgiveness and transformation and hope and freedom in Jesus. These are the things that define us. These things are good news for our world and we are people of the good news. In these things we can stand together. And then from that place of security, and freedom from that cornerstone, we can have really great, robust conversations about these important things. We can have strong opinions and we can challenge each other and shape one another and open the scriptures together and say, what is this book really saying to us? How then shall we live? And that's a beautiful thing. And I think it makes Jesus smile. And so this morning we'll do what we do every Sunday. And that's remind us of this truth remind us of the fact that we stand together on the most central thing, God's love for us found in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we'll come to these tables and we'll take the bread and we'll take the cup and we'll declare together, we are sinners in need of a savior and our God loves us and this world so much that he sent his son to die on the cross and be raised again to new life so that we can be transformed and redeemed back into the people that God longs for us and created us to be. And that's a gift that God has offered us and he longs to use us to offer to this world. That's what we'll declare. That is at the very center of our unity. So this morning, I'm just gonna give you a little space. Worship team's gonna play and then I'm gonna invite you to the tables. Because this was a message on unity, I felt like it would be really weird if we all took communion on our own. So here's what I'm gonna ask you to do today. Grab the cups, grab a cup, grab a piece of bread, take it back to your seat and just hold on to it and we're gonna receive the elements together as a declaration of unity, as a declaration of our freedom together in Jesus Christ. All right, the tables are open. Go when you're ready.